Welcome to the Alliance Podcast, Continuing Conversations. My name is Kelly Rehan, Content Manager for the Almanac, the online publication of the Alliance. In this episode, we continue Dr. Brian McGowan's Legends interview series with featured guest, Dr. Jocelyn Lockyer. Listen as Dr. Lockyer describes, in her own words, her prolific CME career. If you like what you hear today, subscribe or leave a review where you listen to podcasts. Hello there. I'm joined on this episode with Dr. Jocelyn Lockyer. Can I refer to you as Jocelyn? Are you okay with that? Please. Please. Great. Just before we start to engage, I'm going to list just a few of the accomplishments. I feel pretty safe saying that I personally believe, Jocelyn, that you are among, if not the most prolific applied research scientist of the last 45 years. And I can say that because I can go back and review over 178 peer-reviewed journal articles. And here's the short list of your awards. And this is maybe, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with all of this, but for those who aren't in the community, who don't quite spend as much time in the publications and at the research meetings, dating back to 1976, you were deemed to be a future star and impact in healthcare. In 93, you received the President's Award. In 95, Outstanding Research. In 96, another President's Award from the Alliance. In 97, an Original Research Award. In 02, JSEP Contribution Award. In 04, an Award for Developing Testing Instruments for Physician Competence. In 04, Golden Apple. In 05, the JSEP Excellence in Research Award. In 07, probably when I fell in love with your career was the meta-analysis article. In 08, the Fox Award from SACME for Best Research. In 09, the Canadian Association of Medical Education Distinguished Contribution Award. In 2011, a Best Research Paper, and it goes on and on and on and on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. So I said most prolific, and, and I hope this comes across the right way. I also feel in some respects the most underappreciated. Does that make sense? I don't think so. I don't think I ever felt underappreciated. Okay. I just carried on and did my job. I got, I mean, you noted some of the awards, but, you know, there were a couple that were perhaps more impressive more later, which were more lifetime awards. The Ian Hart Award in Education, which is given out by the Canadian Association for Medical Education and recognizes outstanding educators. I also got an honorary fellowship from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. And that, of course, would be the pinnacle because, you know, I'm not a physician, mm-hmm. and, but I had done incredible amount of volunteer work with the Royal College, served on many committees, written many papers. Uh, and was well-known. And so in recognition of that, I got an honorary fellowship. So you, you feel appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, so let me peel that back a little. So the reason why I say that is because I, I feel like we'll get into the Canadian-U.S. environments and really professional communities. And then I also think there's the academic versus non-academic communities in continuing medical education. And so 
I think you did a good, a very good job at explaining the appreciation and respect that you've rightly earned in the Venn diagram of academic and Canadian and, and then you, but you take the other part of that Venn diagram, which is U.S. and non-academic. And this is the Alliance, broadly the Alliance community for the last 15 or 20 years. And these are the folks that may poke their head into JSEP very periodically, and they probably work through the Almanac nowadays. But for the folks who don't read research articles, who don't dig into meta-analyses, in that population, which per capita, I mean, maybe 80 to 90% of the CME profession in the United States, um, clearly your work and respect in the SACME world is one. And that's why I say underappreciated. Does that make a little bit more sense? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, th I think something that you might find interesting, and it strikes me today and then also as humorous, uh, when I got into CME in 1977, I was hired at the University of Calgary in a faculty position, but it was a non-teaching faculty position. I had a master's degree. And a lot of the research that I did in those early days was very pragmatic, very opportunistic. But I worked with some wonderful people who felt that if you're going to do work, you had to approach it in a scholarly way and you had to disseminate it, right? So my dissemination was tons of workshops, short presentations, and, and also publications. And that was how I came to be, I guess, known by the Alliance. And in fact, my invite to that board was, we'd like to have you. And I said, well, why? You know, what is it that I offer? And it was because I wasn't a male. I wasn't a PhD at that point. I wasn't American. Those are the three I remember. There may have been other criteria, but I kind of fit, you know, fit some holes that somebody had created in some matrix or another. And so, you know, I did, I was on the board two terms, which was all that was allowed, so 90 to 96. And, you know, at home, I carried on, uh, I was director of CME um, and uh, carried on with both research and, and, you know, the pragmatic aspects of running a CME unit, which is course production. And I worked with other researchers. And again, a lot of that stuff was quite pragmatic. And I worked with the Alliance on some two-day courses on how to do CME, how to do CME needs assessments, how to do evaluations, at, you know, probably in retrospect, you know, very pragmatic, very opportunistic. But those were my contributions. And I actually did a PhD and started about 2000 and finished in 2002. But I was able to build off of work I had done from 96 to 2000, we had quite a bit of data. And so it was really, the PhD was really a secondary data analysis. Um, so there's, there's so many things I want to dive into. I say applied, you say pragmatic, I say academic, you say scholarly. It is, it is the blending of those two, which has interested me so much about what you've done. For those individuals who don't have the scientific training or the, the research training, 
I can say this without hesitation, you can read, those individuals can read almost every one of Jocelyn's articles and mm -hmm. consume it. What you, the research questions that you ask, the way you're presenting the information is very much in keeping with what the individuals who aren't in academic or scholarly settings are still doing on a day-to-day -day basis. In 1991, you have an Almanac article, where is the, the rigor in CME? Um, you, you talk in, in 1987 about the conversion to CME teleconferencing, and that's like from a rural clinician setting. But is there anything more timely than even your 1987 work about how we transition this? In 05, online medical education. In 06, a transition from live to online CME. I mean, this is, it, 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 it's almost like you can dive back into almost any part of the research that you've done, and it's, it's applicable. Like what you hear on the Alliance podcast? Visit almanac.acehp.org to read the latest continuing professional development news and insights. Visit today to get informed and inspired. So, so let's go back in time. So let's go back, a bachelor's in economics, and then you go into a master's program. Can you tell us a little bit about the master's program that you started with? Oh, it was in health administration. And uh, so it was, it was an, at an interesting time in the mid-70s, because I, early to mid-70s, because I think at that time, people were just assuming more broad careers in health admin. So originally, they were all hospital administrators. But, you know, nobody's going to hire you as a hospital administrator when you're 23 or 24 years old, let's be honest. And so I ended up working... At a, small, at a hospital in Hamilton, Ontario, with another hero of mine, John Premi, who developed practice-based small groups across Canada, a formidable force in education for physicians, and still continues to this day. But in, in that job, which is sort of an assistant to a department, got an opportunity to do a little bit of education, a little bit of admin, a little bit of research, and then I moved to Calgary, where I was hired to essentially to support CME and um, some postgraduate medical education, again, in a supportive role, um, reporting to physicians. And it was, you know, through that that I, I was able to develop my writing skills and research skills long, be long, long before I did PhD. PhD. Mm -hmm. um, so in that time when you get to Calgary and you're supporting the CME program, it's within an academic healthcare system? Well, it's within the university. The university faculty of medicine in Canada operates a little bit outside of the health system. I mean, the department heads are generally cross-appointed so that they are department heads for both the hospital or health system as well as, or an area of the health system, as well as the university. Uh, but my position was within the university structure. Okay, so what was the planning process like? What was the operational process like for the office at that time in terms of identifying what needed to be taught in terms of just understanding the value of medical education? Because that's pretty much the pivot point of your competent for life to 
in the United States, that's the time for mandatory, you know, the birth of the mandatory CME argument in many, many states. And so where, where's continuing medical education on the radar at that point? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, the College of Family Physicians had been formed, I think, in the late 50s, and it was formed on the, not so much for residency education as for practicing physicians to give them a designation that was equivalent to what their Royal College specialist colleagues had. So family physicians were doing CME, um, and so there were courses in place when I started, some which start, which had been going. I mean, Calgary's a new university relatively. At that point, it's about 55 years old now, but started in 67. And so CME was always a part of the faculty, but it wasn't always done well. And so I was really hired. I mean, let's be honest, I was hired as a manager, see what you can do with it by the dean. And we just, uh, I just started to work with physicians who were interested, recruited other physicians, we developed courses. But because I had worked in Hamilton in the Department of Family Medicine, I looked at course development through a family medicine lens, which I think was, was unique. Other centers developed, you know, the specialty course in cardiology, the specialty course in pediatrics. That didn't seem to work well in Calgary. It was very much a family medicine community. So we created courses that were designed by family physicians for family physicians from the outset and eventually eliminated a lot of the specialty-driven courses, at least when I was involved. So there's this bridge at some point, I imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, as you're starting there in Calgary, the -hmm. connection between perceived and actual needs connected to content planning, connected to behavior change and pull through, like all of that scaffolding isn't in place at that point, right? Or is it, it's, it's, I want to build a course or we think we need a course on left toenail fungus and you go build the course on left toenail fungus and maybe there's an evaluation, like how sophisticated was the program and how did it start to transition? Oh, I think when I started, there were three or four courses in place. And so we kept adding them. Um, But we added them as we got input. You know, I remember one of the family physician leaders in one of the hospitals saying, you know, Jocelyn, we don't have an evening course. There's lots of docs who don't get to rounds at eight in the morning on a Monday morning. Why don't we develop an evening course and that way you know, women, female physicians who have childcare obligations in the morning and others who start their clinics early can also have an opportunity. So that was how that course started. There was a therapeutics course. And again, it was a suggestion from a faculty member who was a a pharmacologist, a physician pharmacologist. And we, I worked with him to develop that course so that, um, we had both pharmacists and family physicians on the planning committee. We figured there was a need for emergency medicine training for rural physicians. And I, I can't remember who initiated that or how it was initiated. It might have been the rural doctors. Um, but coupled with those things, we used the evaluations from the previous year 
And we also did a lot of need surveys. We'd fire out surveys when physicians would still answer surveys that were sent out by mail. We'd fire out surveys. Um, and in fact, one of the early tasks probably, you know, I was hired in 77, it might have been 77, 78, was a general needs assessment that went out to a large group of physicians in the southern part of the province to get ideas for courses and content. So as near as I can recall, we were always doing, you know, needs assessments of some sort, and we got more sophisticated over time. Um, and we drew on other data over time as well. Right. So no, so certainly at that point, you're not, there's not a closed loop. There's not a registry that's tracking back to performance over time. It's the early days. There, the ideas of rigor or your concerns about the ideas of rigor, can you kind of walk us through like what, what needed to happen then or over the next decade, what was working, where was rigor being applied and maybe where it wasn't being applied? I think, I think the issue was more pragmatic and seeing what you could get away with. <laughs> and I don't mean that in an unkind way, but, you know, people talk about leadership, but if you get too far ahead of the troops or too far ahead of the group, you're not going to get anywhere. So you kind of have to be a few steps ahead and carry on. I think, you know, my big dream for CME was that we would be able to give physicians data about their practice, give them feedback about their practice that it wasn't just about courses and trying to develop courses, although we certainly developed some courses, very intense courses, where we got physicians to provide us with some data from their practices, how they handled whatever it was. We then ran the course, and then we followed up. Uh, we had them do commitment to change uh, forms, you know, what I expect to do. We followed up on the commitment to change. Um, we're able, obviously able to publish that because it was a thread of my career which looks at commitment to change as, a, as an approach. But I think we just carried on adding incrementally as we were able to and as we had funds to be able to do that and interest from the other clinicians, from the clinicians I worked with. Okay. So, so uh, early on, and we'll go through some of the threads, the commitment to change, we can certainly talk at length about. I've, I've presented your data multiple times over the last few years. Early on, there was some work specifically, and this is, it's pragmatic and it's, it's applied, but in some ways it's, it's kind of meta that this idea of physician learning and change, like in general sense, what were some of your earlier ideas of what needed to happen to support the realities of adult learning, physician learning, and change. Phil Manning had done some interesting work, which was published, and he sent people into doctor's offices and they collected data. They looked at whether they followed up the questions they had in practice. Now we did, John Pabrising and I did some of that work in Calgary. We were, and we published it, and we were invited through that to work with uh, Bob Fox, Paul Masmanian, and... Um, I'm looking for the book. 
Wayne Putnam. Yeah, changing and learning in the lives. It always, it, it's always within arm's distance. I got to figure out what bookshelf it's on today. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, so we were invited to uh, be part of that. And that was actually quite a catalyzing um, experience for us because we got to collect data, send it in. I mean, this was crude stuff, right? Send it in to whoever was collecting it, probably Bob Fox at that time. And then they cut it all up, Xeroxed, probably Xeroxed it, cut it all up. We went to this meeting somewhere in the US and they handed us, you know, well, this is your clump of data to look at for your chapter. And it was, you know, bits and pieces of paper. And then we analyzed, analyzed that. And of course they had done more of a larger analysis overall. Um, yeah, so we had an opportunity, I had an opportunity to work with that with John Parvusing, interviewed physicians, so gained some experience. And then from that, uh, did, we did other, other work. But I guess for me, it was, what's the point of education if people aren't changing? It was clear at some point, not sure where, that if sat people in a theater and lined them up and had at them, didn't go very far. Being an Alliance member has its perks, from discounts to industry-leading events like the Alliance Annual Conference to members-only access to the Alliance Learning Center. The Alliance is where healthcare CE professionals come to learn. Visit acehp.org slash membership to join today. It's very interesting to me, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it's very interesting to me that about the same time that that research was being done around perceived and actual and what it takes to change, and, and we started to get a little bit where our community was just beginning to touch on implementation science well before it had a name and knowledge transfer well before it had a name, um, that... Uh, the adult learning communities were starting to define how adults learn separately from adolescents and Malcolm blessed us with andragogy and um, for better or worse. And so we started to understand that these adult learners were experience-based. They were self-directed. They needed to actually uh, build on prior knowledge. And we got schema construction and all that that came from it. At the same time that that's happening, and that is such a cornerstone to how our community operates today um, and, and how we should move forward at the same exact time, and you have a, a bachelor's in economics, at the same exact time, the economics community was beginning to understand how fraught with irrationality adults were. And mm -hmm. so this gives rise to Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky and irrationality and eventually Rich Daller and nudge theory and this idea that we, we don't forecast properly, but we think we do. We don't hindcast properly, but we think we do. And in reality, 90% of the time we're in fast thinking mode. And I, I've spent, 10 years kind of struggling with this idea that the, the real catalyst for adult learning science and the research that's happened since then all happened in like 75 to 85. 
That's like the period where we, we really kind of understood that adults were going to be different and started to apply it. And the real catalyst for behavioral economics and irrationality and understanding that humans aren't automatons and that our ability to make rational decisions is often challenged is 75 to 85. And here we are now with these two, in many ways, totally contradictory ideas of uh, human adult existence. And so I, I can, I'm looking so much forward to talking to Bob about this for that reason. Like, and, and so, so in, um, and I think, although very few people have connected that dot, um, your PhD in O2 is on multi-source feedback. Your ideas around, well, if, we're not, if the clinician's not going to change, what's the point of teaching them? Um, all that, that meshes perfectly with the realities of human irrationality and whether we truly are self-directed as we believe we are. And so feedback, in many ways, is that awareness. It's that trigger to move somebody into, if it's done well, it's the trigger to move somebody in the slow thinking reflective mode. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, the trajectory of multi-source feedback is an interesting one. Um, it turned out uh, our College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, which is like your state licensing board, except that has more teeth, uh, by, if I may be so bold, uh, they were quite interested in doing a 360 type work, getting patient input, um, colleagues and um, co-worker input into to provide data to physicians. They didn't have a good way of capturing the data. My office had a Scantron, the only Scantron in the province or something at 95. And so they asked us to work with them. And um, so that's, and so we did. Um, and so I've obviously done a lot of multi-source feedback work. And when we were doing it, a lot of that was on communication, professionalism, uh, collaboration, and that's where the real guts of multi-source feedback seemed to me. When I got into it, though, I hope that would be a route to giving physicians feedback about their prescribing practices and how they were doing work in a more, I guess, clinical um, way. And I. And it didn't work. It, I mean, it, that wasn't where the payoff was. Although interestingly, at the same time, or shortly after the American Board of Internal Medicine was really interested in that, they created a multi-source feedback instrument. Then they realized they could parlay that into getting physicians to collect data about how they were managing hypertension, diabetes. Um, and then they, so they used their technology, in fact, to move along that clinical route. We kept on in, in Alberta, really looking at, at more professionalism, communication skills, which turned out nobody else was assessing. And in fact, if you do a, an audit in a hospital or you can collect clinical data or EMR data, you can you know, give physicians good, potentially better data than what their colleagues and patients can tell them. But right now, um, but we recognize with multi-source feedback that physicians weren't changing. If what they got was an envelope in the mail with their data, uh, you know, one physician so eloquently put it, I looked at, I looked at the report, thought I passed, 
stuffed it in a, in a drawer. Yeah, right. So, uh, so multi-source feedback got some criticism. And finally, with work that um, Karine Overeem, Joan Sargent, um, we, we recognized that you had to really do something else. Yeah. And you had to have a discussion. So most recently, the work I'm currently doing, because I, even though I'm retired, I'm actually in a very privileged position to still be able to do some work with our, with the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the regulator, uh, who, who adopted the, what we call the R2C2 model, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But um, in Alberta and with, with the Medical Council of Canada, the Medical Council of Canada is like your national board of medical examiners. So the Medical Council of Canada is actually administering the multi-source feedback 360 evaluation across Canada, and it's their product now. And it just focuses on three areas, collaboration, communication, professionalism. And again, it's still patient coworkers and colleagues who complete the questionnaires. We um, devised a system where physicians got their data. They then had to um, identify an action plan or start to identify an action plan. They have a facilitated discussion with a trained facilitator who uses the R2C2 model. And then uh, they, then they um, uh, have to, in three, at three months, they also have to report back to the college. So remember, this is the licensing people, had to report back to the college on whether they implemented the change and what problems they had and whether they need any more assistance, as in another phone call. <laughs> and we're, we're looking at the data. We've looked at, um, we're doing a case study of 50. And, you know, it's quite promising. I, there are certainly some physicians that right off the bat were able to look at their data and figure out an action plan and how they were going to do it. In other cases, physicians co-developed the plan with the facilitator who was a peer physician. Um, and some were essentially it was the, the, the facilitator helping them along big time. Um, but we're seeing some good results with that. But I think the challenge is people can't take a lot of data, especially in the early days when it was just numeric and didn't have any narrative. Um, and even receiving narrative, they often couldn't work with it. So you generate the data. Joe and I talked at length about registries. Mm -hmm. well, how do you apply them? Like presenting somebody with a dashboard, uh, gamifying it, making their bar red, yellow, or green. Like this is where we are with mm -hmm. the, the UX, the design of feedback. But we're talking life or death. We're talking professional identity and ego with these types of uh, multi-source feedback things. The idea that someone doesn't need a counselor slash coach to walk them through it, I think dramatically overestimates human frailties or, or kind of just those types of concerns. Does that feel right? Yes, yes, but you can see why 
took so long. Um, first of all, you needed to be able to convince people, you know, in our case, regulators. And they had to find the money for facilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, with multi-source feedback, the people that got the phone calls were the people at the top of the heap, the ten, top 10% and the bottom 10%. Mm-hmm. Top 10% so that they could learn from that experience, the bottom 10%, so they could, you know, use that as a screen and then they could, you know, depending on what they found out, could actually send another physician into their office and work with with them in a remedial mode. Mm-hmm. But it but is costly to have an hour conversation with everybody who gets their data. Um, and so that took some negotiation, A, to get it recognized, and then for the Medical Council of Canada who's administering this, to put it into their agreements with pro- provincial and and uh, not only provincial, but also some hospital systems, so that if they were going to use the tool, there had to be um, some facilitation. Simultaneously, or in conjunction with this, uh, since about 2010, some articles that Joan Sargent led around how do physicians and medical students, residents self-assess, we learned uh, that there was lots of data out there, but it was often hard for physicians to make sense of the data. And from that, we developed the R2C2 model. And and it's a simple, it's a coaching model, but it certainly doesn't make you a coach in a a credentialed way. But the the R2C2 model is really to get... um, to look at, you know, what is the data? Uh, how does the person that you're talking to react to the data? Can you get an agreement on the content of it? And then from there, can you um, can you uh, develop an action plan? So first R is relationship, second R is reaction, then your content, and, uh, and then commit to change really coaching to commit to change and co-developing that plan. I, I, I absolutely, this is, this is one of these things I'd put in the bucket of uh, not everything can be simplified. Like, yeah, wouldn't you love to just email out a report and say, here's like I get from my electric company compares mm-hmm. me to my neighbors. I talk about a file drawer problem that goes in there pretty quickly. Like, I don't know them. I don't know how many kids they had. They, they don't know my healthcare system. They, I, I can come up with a thousand reasons why my bar is longer than their bar. Mm-hmm. But with, without that context of, of, and perspective. And, and so the coaches, Roger Federer's tennis coach isn't a better player than he is. And Tiger Woods golf coach is certainly not a better player than he is. And so you wouldn't expect that the coach has to be an expert. It's, it is a facilitator. It's that it's close to motivational interviewing, right? It's, you know, gain, gain, gain the investment and allow the person to, to chart the path. And you're basically just architecting some of that through the questions you ask. Well, and in fact, when I work with physicians and I do a lot of the training for of facilitators, it's okay, so this isn't different from what you do with your patients, 
right? You know, and and the person who does the facilitation is a peer physician. So they've worked as family physicians or they've worked as psychiatrists. Um, they know the lay of the land. And, you know, in that relationship building first phase, it really is to, you know, what is going on in their practice? What are the good pieces? What are the challenges? It's getting to know the physician doesn't always take a lot of time. Um, getting to know the physician and then getting the reaction to the data. So, which, as you say, it's trying to find that sweet spot where the physician identifies things that they're prepared to change, uh, but also nudging them if needed, because if there's some things that the facilitator has seen as they go across the report and say, gee, you know, Dr. Smith, uh, I see your patients are rating you this way, but your coworkers are rating you that way, or your medical colleagues are saying this. Uh, can you see, think of any reason why your coworkers might have a different opinion about your work um, or your communication than your physician colleagues would have? And so it's, you know, the facilitator has to be able to go across and not just within each data point. It's so fascinating, the complexity of all of this and, and the idea, like, this is how people learn. This is how people change. This is how, uh, you, if we apply Harry, Joe, and, and Don's pyramid, if this is we want to get to performance and we want to get the patient and community outcomes, if we keep saying these are our goals, then our community has to embrace these realities. Like it changes local, changes prefrontal for every learner. They, they've got to be able to manage and work through the, the emotions and the ego and, and you know, a 5,000 person satellite symposium is probably not um, going to move more than two or three people through all of this, the complexity of, hu of just the human condition. So, so, so I'm going to make a dramatic left-hand turn here in the conversation and um, talk through a little bit the 07 meta-analysis, like not, not in any detail. So talk, talk about a dramatic left-hand turn um, because um, A, it, the, it's one of several meta-analyses that were published around the same time. Marinopoulos, the ARC study, I think Todd Dorman participated in that. I think Dave Davis had one a few years earlier. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. I, I think the community by and large gives those meta-analyses kind of lip service. They take away the, the general statement, which is by and large CME works. But there are some very, very specific takeaways in the meta-analyses that you published that I don't think the community truly embraces. And they are so practical and they are so necessary. And so not to put you on the spot, like the, there, you, you broke the meta-analyses down by type of instruction. So you kind of broke it into, I think, passive, active, and there was one other category. Um, if some of this is coming back to you, you broke it down by type of, of learner or participant and the number of participants, which I thought was really interesting. And you make the following, let's see, the following statements. Let's get the right article here. So the, 
just some of the key outcomes here. So um, the analysis, the moderator variables in active or mixed methods had a medium effect size. So uh, Sir Ken Robinson says there's never a teacher better, there's never a classroom better than its teacher. And your mm. point is instructional design, not mm. all things are created equal, right? You can't just compare live this to face-to-face. -to -face. Like it really is about the interventions and the way that the education experience is really designed. Um, while passive methods had a very small effect size. There's a positive correlation between the effect size and the length of the intervention. That would be, a, that would be really interesting to dive into more deeply, mm -hmm. um, especially nowadays. Everything's micro-learning and uh, attention span of a goldfish myths and misconceptions that are out there, and let's make everything two or three minutes. Um, but here's some of the ones I love the most. There's a negative correlation between effect size and programs that involved multiple disciplines. Wow, right? Uh, this is, talk, talk about the thread of something that needs further exploration, right? This big push for interprofessional or interdisciplinary. And yet, if you look at it, the, there's a lot of complexity in trying to evaluate or create educational experiences that are interprofessional, interdisciplinary. That, I can guarantee you that sentence has never appeared in any grant proposal I ever reviewed, right? It's just like that maybe there's a challenge. And then um, the correlation between effect size and the length or the duration at which the outcome was assessed is inverse, is negative. Okay, so it's almost your own little Ebbinghaus curve there, right? Like if you assess a month later versus three months later, things may not still be... And then the best one or one that we should all take away is there's a negative correlation between effect size and the number of participants. 5,000 people in a symposium versus five people in a small group workshop. So um, those types of findings where you look back across 3,000 original articles that obviously was boiled down to a smaller set of articles. But when you look back and you find things like that, like how do we get our community to embrace those very practical takeaways? Or how do we further the research from those general meta-analyses to say, well, what do we know, need to know more about the length of time or the number of participants? Is there mm -hmm. some other questions that come to mind? Yeah, possibly, but, but I think part of the issue is how do you disseminate this stuff? Um, because it does get lost in the journal articles. And you have to be at meetings like the Alliance SACME, where I call it proselytizing. Um, but you do have to be out there making yourself available. You, you can't just do the research and let it lie fallow. Now, that meta-analysis as it happens was, you know, the brains of that one was my co-author, Mali Mansouri. Mali showed up on my doorstep one day. She'd done the work as part of a course in her PhD program in the Haskane School of Business. Mali was an internationally trained physician who'd come into Canada to do a PhD. She didn't speak much English. She had a family. Um, and she said, I'd like to publish this. And quite frankly, it wasn't ready uh, for publication, but we worked, oh, I think for a year or two to, you know, 
to do it and she'd go away and she'd edit the introduction and she'd work on the methods and she was leaping ahead to the discussion. I said, no, 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 let's make sure we understand the results. And so actually the commendations aren't for me, but they really are for Mally. And, and maybe part of that is I didn't spend a lot of time disseminating it. It was probably at the same time as we're pushing multi-source feedback uh, and evaluating courses and commitment to change. So that wasn't particularly high on my priority list. Dave Davis was doing a lot of work on, uh, in that area. Um, and then, then of course, uh, there was Todd Dorm Dorman's work as well. So I, I, think, um, I think the work probably didn't get as much recognition as it could have, although I'm always, in, as I get uh, information from Google Scholar, I see it still being cited. Sure. Um, and the, my largest number of citations is, is from that piece, um, which is interesting because I, I totally agree with that. I think I led the, the, this podcast with that. That was my assumption. But I think the reason why it is, Jocelyn, is because it, is because it, it, uh, it's used to answer a very simple question or to cite a very simple fact that someone's trying to make, which is CME is effective. And it's not used to actually understand what the article, and this is the same thing with Marinopolis, it's the same thing with Dave's, is that what these articles are showing us is um, they're, they're question generating articles, right? Mm -hmm. So you're basically saying, okay, it appears that larger and uh, multimodal and it appears this and appears this and appears this. And yet our community by and large looks at it and says, they, they make these general sweeping statements. And so I kind of want to close this all by saying the publications that you've done, there's almost a, like a, an oddly simple way that I think about this. And one is, um, as an academic scholarly uh, research scientist, as you have been for years, you, you have a 77 page CV as of 2017. Probably. I don't believe anybody else in CME has a CV, a curriculum vitae. I don't believe that exists. There is no professional, like, uh, uh, graphic designers create portfolios. Mm. CME profession professionals don't. We may have a resume, but it is, I mean, it's, it's flowers and unicorns, right? It's not what we've done. It doesn't explain everything we've done. And so in some respects, um, as, lo as long as I've been following your career, it's a very different experience to go through the CV and say, okay, this, oh, now, I need, now I understand how she was in this phase of her career. She was working on these questions and then she transitioned to these sets of questions. And so your point about you can't just do the research, you have to publicize, you have to publish it and then you have to proselytize it and you have to get it out. Um, the, I think there's one lesson for our community there, right? One is that um, we can't achieve, accomplish, we can't complete a project and move on without debriefing, learning from it, and God help me, sharing those lessons with those around us. Um, you use the term in, in the meta-analyses of the file drawer problem, and, and yeah, sometimes the lessons may be bad, 
And sometimes they may not reflect well on us, but we cannot consider ourselves a professional community and not share those failures. Um, I, I, I do it quite frequently. Um, so, so that's, so I think that's one lesson I, I learn when I watch your career. Um, but the thing you said right before we closed is that this idea you have to get out there, you have to share it. I think the other lesson I'm taking away from this, this call through the lens of my experience over the last 20 years is that I don't know people are listening, right? I, yeah, it's one thing for you to go to SACME and talk about it or publish it in JSEP, but I believe that the folks who need this information are not at SACME. They're certainly not at SACME for 363 days of the year. They may be there for two. They're not reading JSEP, and even if they flip through the table of contents, they're not digging deep into the discussion part where this context can be provided. So you've been on Twitter since 2012. I feel like you kind of get that we could do this differently. So how, how do we, besides this 45 or 50-minute conversation, like how do we make the masses aware of everything that Jocelyn has done um, and not not just to credit her, but to ensure that there's a firm branch that we can all stand on as we try to build further up this tree. Well, that's a good point. Um, and certainly some of the more accomplished researchers in medical education, not going to see me, but medical education, um, do use, do use uh, Twitter to highlight articles they've just written and I'm also aware that journals like the Journal of Graduate Medical Education also use Twitter to highlight um, articles that they've just published. The In Canada, the Canadian Medical Education Journal also uses Twitter to um, get the word out about um, their issues or specific articles. I, I do think Twitter can be effective, although it can be overwhelming at times. As we're currently yeah. enduring in the United States with our current leadership, yes, yes. Well, and it depends on how many people you follow, how overwhelming it is and how grumpy they are and whether you read every thread. You know, one of my favorites is David Frum. But uh, yeah, he certainly has a perspective on U.S. politics. But yeah, I do think you just have to keep being out there and taking advantage. I hope that this interview serves as a documentation, an archive, and maybe the beginning of a conversation about how we can go back and much more effectively learn from those whose shoulders we're currently standing on. Thank you. So thank you very much for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure meeting you. Oh, thank you. And nice to meet you too, because certainly uh, this kind of a interesting request. I never really thought of myself as being a legend. Somebody described me as an icon once, and that was about 20 years ago. <laughs> it's it, heavy as the head that wears the crown, but thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for listening to the Alliance podcast, continuing conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to stay updated on future releases. 
In the meantime, we invite you to access our wealth of continuing professional development content on the Almanac at almanac.acehp.org. Until next time.